understand what your personal skills are. Uh, talk about this time, money, and knowledge triangle. You need to figure out which one you have and tailor your investing strategy to what you got. Best ever listeners, wouldn't it be nice to have a $2 million pre-approval line of credit? Uh, just think about that. Isn't that nice? Wouldn't that be nice? How would that help you get more deals done? Because when you submit a pre-approval line of credit with your offer on a fix and flip house, you think it's going to stand out more? I think so. And our friends at Fun That Flip, you know Fun That Flip, Matt Rodak, he's been on the show before many times. He's a friend of mine. He's also the owner of Fun That Flip and they're a sponsor of today's episode. What they're doing is they're giving a $2 million pre-approval line of credit up to $2 million pre-approval line of credit for qualified buyers. And my gosh, in this competitive buying market, sellers prefer to sell to buyers who have a high likelihood of closing, right? Makes sense. Well, use this pre-approval line of credit from Fund That Flip and that will signal to the seller that you're the real deal and you'll be able to close quickly. It's free. All you gotta do is go to fundthatflip.com. You've gotta qualify that you have prior experience and there's a process, but it's free and you need to go to fundthatflip.com to get the pre-approval line of credit because this is a way that's gonna help your short-term rehab loan happen because you're going to get the deal for the property where you need the short-term rehab loan. Go to fundthatflip.com and get that pre-approval line of credit for up to $2 million. Best ever listeners, hello. Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the show where we cut out the fluffy stuff and we only talk about the best real estate investing advice that moves your business forward. With us today, we got Lane Kawaoka. How are you doing, Lane? Hey, Joe. How's it going? It's going well, my friend, and nice to have you on the podcast. And a little bit about Lane, and then he'll get into it. He is the principal at Simple Passive Cashflow Investments. He is a fellow podcaster. You can go check out his stuff at simplepassivecashflow.com. He's the host of, well, guess what the name is? Simple Passive Cashflow Podcast. Nice branding. Very consistent. He's also a project engineer at the city of Kirkland near Seattle, Washington. He has a portfolio that consists of 11 single-family homes in Birmingham, Atlanta, Indianapolis, and in Pennsylvania. With that being said, Lane, you want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and what you're focused on now? Yeah, so I started investing. um, Actually, it started after I graduated University of Washington with industrial engineering and a master's in civil engineering. I went to work at a horrible job where I had to travel 100% of the time. And I was compensated for this by a nice salary, but I was out traveling all over the place. A few years later, I was able to save enough money to buy a primary residence, because that's what everybody said you should do. So I bought that residence. I was only there on Saturday since I had to travel out on Sunday and back on Friday. So I figured I'd rent the home out. And I was like, whoa, this thing is pretty cool. It's kind of like the MP3 when the Napster was around. (laughs) So I saw the difference between the rent and then my mortgage was. And I was like, wow, I have to keep doing this. So I read that Rich Dad, Poor Dad book. I listened to a whole bunch of podcasts. 
And then I just got like zeroed in and bought another duplex in a few years later in 2012. But then shortly after the Seattle prices went up and I was priced out, everything doesn't cash flow these days in Seattle or I'm sure it's the same in other markets in like California. So I kind of did a pivot point at this point to uh, try to out-of-state rental and it worked like sliced bread. And now I have 11 of these things all over the United States. How many hours do you work in your full-time job? Before I used to work at least 60 hours. Um, I took a pay cut recently, changed jobs. Now I'm a city engineer, so I work my 40 hours a week, and that's about it. And why did you take the pay cut? Because time is your most valuable asset. It's all about you know doing what you want with your time, and quite frankly, I didn't need to make $100,000 or more. So you're buying these out-of-state rentals. How are you finding them? In the beginning, it's pretty tough because you don't know what you're looking at, but once you kind of dig into it, you know, start networking. I know it always sounds old-fashioned, but you really have to get to know people and start cross-referencing different contexts, such as property managers and different rehabbers in the areas, and just figure out who are the good people to work with. Well, specifically, are you doing just an internet search originally? Like you did an internet search and you just started calling people, or how did you go about your approach? I actually went on bigger pockets at first, and I got at least five people that I talked on the phone with. And then I was able to cross-reference those references and kind of check each other. Because you don't know who you're meeting on bigger pockets, whether they're investing or they're just trying to sell you stuff. Okay, so you connected with people on bigger pockets, about five of them. Then you cross-reference the references. What do you mean by that? You know, if you talk to one guy for an hour on the phone and, you know, he's telling you his experience and, you know, he mentions who he was working with and then you figure out a couple people and then you kind of ping them on, hey, you're in Indianapolis too. Have you worked with so-and-so from Indianapolis? And in one area like Indianapolis, just using that as an example, you know, there's only about two or three turnkey providers that you probably want to be working with. And the good people's names always keep coming up. Okay. So you're buying from turnkey providers? Yeah, originally that's what I did because, you know, it's nice how they do everything. You know, they do the property management, they take care of the rehab, and you're working with the one person the whole time. But I've kind of transferred my later properties. I've been working with agents, and that way I can kind of get the best of both worlds because it's a little dangerous working straight with the turnkey providers since I'm not a real estate professional. I'm signing their contracts. And at least you can have like a third party out there advising me, you know, if this is a good street, if there's a few blighted properties on it, or if the rent rolls aren't checking out correctly. Was there an event that caused you to go from turnkey to working with agents? Not a particular event, but when I did go with agents, there was at least a few times where we walked away from a purchase and sell agreement. You know, one time my agent said, hey, there's a blighted property across the street and i have a property on this street myself, and this is just not a good place. Another time, there's this weird thing going on with a Section 8 property. The property was being rented for $650 per Section 8, but there's this weird maintenance lease that was for an additional $200, and my agent was like, you can't count on that $200 being paid after the sale closes. And there's a few other times where my agent said, you know, this, this neighborhood, we need to just run away. This is not a good one. And you didn't get that feedback on the turnkey from the turnkey providers? 
That's correct. And I guess we won't find out the aftermath until a few years later. But luckily, um, I feel a lot more comfortable with these other properties I use the agent with. Got it. Okay. And who's to say they should have given you feedback or shouldn't because none of those scenarios might have been in place. But nonetheless, you've uncovered some things working with agents that is different type of feedback you're getting before. That's correct. I like the guys, but I would do the same thing too. I'm just trying to sell the house. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, when you look at a property, I mean, you're based in Seattle, right? That's correct. You're buying all over the U.S. How do you run your numbers? So the first thing I'll do is I'll look at the rent-to-value ratio, and I have a post on this, and I call it, it's kind of like Tinder, the dating app. You know, you swipe left, swipe right. You've got so many houses out there. That's the first thing you look at is meeting the 1%, and it's a different for everybody. For me, it's 1%, the rent-to-value ratio. So for a $100,000 house, if it's not renting for at least $1,000, I kind of would swipe left. I don't even know which one it is to get rid of it. <laughs> I, I just keep moving on. Okay. And that usually will take at least 75 to 50% of the possibilities out there. Sometimes people will bring me stuff that's $250,000 and it's like renting for $1,500. i am like, dude, man, I'd rather stay in Seattle for that kind of rent-to-value ratio. Okay, that's the first thing. Then what? Then I'll start to get the advice from the people on the ground, you know, my agent or my property manager. I'll give him the street. Maybe he'll do a drive-by for me. And then if he says it's good, and I put a lot of faith in those people on the ground, and then I'll put in a purchase and sell agreement. And at that point, I have all my contingencies such as appraisal and inspection. So I feel like I'm very comfortable moving forward. And I work with the same people over and over again. They know that I'm a pretty serious buyer. And if there's something very wrong with the property, then I'm going to get out of it. And most of the times, these people, they're selling the property, and it's, it's a good property in a good area. So they really have a good, lot of faith that I'm going to follow through on the purchase. I suspect that you skipped a step, but maybe you didn't. So to recap, you said that you look at the rent-to-value ratio, must be 1%. Then you find someone on the ground, get their advice, and if they say it checks out, the area is good, then you make an offer. Do not run the numbers in an actual spreadsheet before you make the offer. I did in the beginning, and you know, being an engineer, I really geek out on that stuff, I guess. But I kind of know what I'm going to get from these properties. I typically think to myself that I'm going to collect about 70% at the end of the day. You know, $1,000 rent, I'm going to collect about 700 after expenses, and then obviously minus your mortgage. So I just know ballpark $700, and then the mortgage on these type of properties are about 500 bucks. So I hit my numbers, which is the $200 amount. $200 a month income. Right. So it's a real quick and dirty way of doing it. I mean, I think people get bogged down with that spreadsheet. I mean, I've stared at that thing for hours, and I kind of know how it works. How are you financing them? I use Fannie Mae mortgages, just your conventional financing, 20 25% down. Do you have a certain number that you are limited to? Yeah, currently you're limited to 10 of these government-subsidized loans. I've had to get one portfolio loan for that 11th one. The terms on it were pretty good. It was a 4.5% five-year arm, but a 25-year amortization. So it was a lot better in terms of rate. I was getting about 5% on my Fannie Mae loans. But again, you have to do the legwork to find these portfolio loans lenders, and not a lot of people are willing to do that. 
and the portfolio lender is a lender that keeps the loan in their portfolio versus sells it on the secondary market so they can be more flexible with terms like credit unions and local banks, right? That's correct. These are all like the really small like western, southern community banks that you just drive by you don't think anything of them. Are you isolating the money that you bring in from these rentals and having that as a real estate fund to buy more or are you using your money from your full-time job to finance these new properties? In the beginning, it all kind of went into one bank account and I didn't really keep track of it. You know, I kind of knew how much I was making. But now that I have a good amount, the rentals can kind of buy one more rental on their own every year and my job can kind of buy one on their own. But I'm kind of switching modes here. The whole single family thing, it's kind of getting out of hand in terms of how much effort it is. I mean, 10 homes is fine, but I'm looking to scale and trying to get into more larger apartment buildings at this point. What do you mean by effort? Typically with 10 properties, you know, I'm going to have at least one or two things go wrong out of the 10 every month. So, you know, something, there are usually something small like, you know, like the window will break or HVAC goes out, you know, one to two of those things that require three calls, you know, one call from the property manager saying that there's a problem. The second, I have to follow up. And then the third, again, follow up again. And there might be an email in there. So on the average, you know, you're talking about six calls a month, which is, it's perfectly doable. You know, I can do this on the weekends or after work, but I mean, I was just thinking of being the guy with 20 or 50 homes and I'm like, oh, I don't want anything to do with that. How are you planning on scaling? I'm really looking into getting them more into the apartment space, trying to get into syndication and, you know, just doing larger projects because it just seems like it's more scalable. Well, what's your best real estate investing advice ever? Understand what your personal skills are. Uh, Talk about this time, money, and knowledge triangle. You need to figure out which one you have and tailor your investing strategy to what you got. There's active and passive investing. You need to figure out what you're going for. I see a lot of people with busy jobs and they want to be flippers and wholesaling. I'm like, yeah, you guys need to rethink your strategy there. And what are your personal skills that you use to help you get to where you're at? I was short on time. I had a decent amount of money. And at that time, I didn't have not a lot of knowledge, but I guess I have a little bit more knowledge now. Okay, so money, basically, from your full-time job. And and now knowledge. Yeah, Joe, I got money, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All right. Okay. You mentioned your engineering background. What has that done to help you get to where you're at? My job is actually a general contractor. I manage millions of dollars. I design projects and I run the construction management on them. So you would think I'd be good at flipping, but I don't want to even touch that stuff. That's for a different personality type. And although I do it work and I do it well, and I know the big business systems around it, it's just not what I'm looking for. I'm looking for more of a passive investing type and I'm not looking for another job. Okay. So to answer the question, what do you use your skills from your engineering? Or you might say, hey, I don't use any of my skills, but I suspect you're using some of the things you've learned from your engineering background to what you're doing now, which is the passive investing. So are you using any of those skills? Yeah, I guess I am. I, mean, I used to have employees out of state that I would have to manage. And you know, just that not needing to be in front of them to 
you know, keep them accountable via email, phone calls. It's just all about keeping people accountable and talking about your expectations and communicating those. You ready for the best ever lightning round? Sure am. All right. First, a quick word from our best ever partners. Best ever listeners, Matt Bowles, who was a guest on episode 289. His company, Maverick Investor Group, has a special report just for you on how to avoid the seven biggest mistakes in real estate that investors make in the 2016 boom cycle. Get yours free at maverickinvestorgroup.com forward slash best ever. That's M-A-V-E-R-I-C-K investorgroup.com forward slash best ever. Best ever book you've read? That would be The Millionaire Real Estate Investor by Gary Keller. Best ever personal growth experience? What'd you learn from it? You know, I've just seen a lot of young people of my peers pass away recently and seen the legacy that they left behind from the memories and the impact on others. About a year ago, I was sitting at my desk at my other job and one of the system generated emails reporting that an employee that I supervise had been involved in a work accident and died. I got a little pissed off how impersonal the company was to this tragedy and then how my ex-employee wasted his time working his butt off for the silly company. So at that time, I realized that I had enough passive income to quit my job. So I felt the need to kind of build the legacy and to help others do the same. Best ever deal you've done? I don't really have any amazing deals to report. They're all pretty lukewarm deals. You know, like typically buy homes that are a hundred grand that rent over a thousand dollars. I practice this minimal effective dose investing outside of my W-2 jobs. So I don't really work much for these distressed properties. So I don't get the screaming returns, but I feel like I optimized the return on my time pretty well. What's the worst deal you've done? Um, the worst deal I've done, it's uh, one property that I have and there's just a lot of water trouble on it. I guess I should have known there's the river in the street address, but <laughs> you know, it's just, it's just a law of averages. That's my opinion. It is what it is. You're going to have losers in your portfolio from time to time. I mean, out of my portfolio of just say 10, three of them are losing money this year already. And it's halfway through the year. That's just how it goes. And are they losing money because of what, the expenses, the certain maintenance items? or? Yeah, a couple of them are just the water issue and then, you know, big ticket, HVAC. And then the other one, we had a uh, vacancy. So perfectly good exceptions, reasons why. What do you do about the water issue? Um, I told them to build a trench drain. We had some uh, water percolating through a retaining wall. I guess that's something from my engineering background. Trench drains are a quick and easy fix. You basically dig a trench next to where the water is and you fill it in with nice clean rock. And then the water goes where the least path of resistance is. So the water will percolate through the rock and go out to where you need to be. Roughly, how much is a trench drain going to cost you? If I did it, I could probably knock it out in a couple hours, but you know, you're talking each hour, just figure about 100, 200 bucks for labor. How long is it? It's a good length, probably about like 20 feet or so. And how wide, roughly? You usually want to keep it two feet wide, keep it a nice square. However deep it is, keep it about that wide. What's the best ever way you like to give back? So when I was growing up, my parents really didn't have much time for me. They had good jobs. So I try and help folks that are trying to struggle balancing jobs and raising children, you know, especially with me 
I mean, I don't really need to work. I don't have kids. I think everybody should have a few rental homes in their portfolio, which could alleviate a lot of financial worries and allow people to focus more on what is truly important to them. What's the biggest mistake you've made so far in real estate? I haven't made too many mistakes because I've been pretty low on my risk reward threshold up to this point. However, I did refinance my first home three times. I don't know why the heck I was doing that. <laughs> I didn't have a strategy at that time and I made my lender pretty rich. I vividly remember like walking through the parking lot with this $30,000 check to go and pay down my mortgage and wondering if it was the right thing to do. Even though I've heard all like the personal finance gurus like Susie Orman and David Ramsey say like that's bad. Now, I'm totally against doing stuff like that. You know, one of my mentors told me that it's not about the interest rate or the amount of debt you carry. It's the amount of cash flow buffer and the net worth growth. Love it. Amount of cash flow buffer and the net worth. Two very important aspects because you can have a really high net worth, but if you don't have any cash, then that net worth might plummet in bankruptcy. And if you have cash flow, then if it's in real estate, then you want to make sure that your net worth is also increasing. Otherwise, if the cash flow dries up, then you're kind of stuck because you, you've got a property with no value. What's the best place the best ever listeners can reach you? Check out my podcast and blog at simplepassivecashflow.com. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. Really appreciate the time, Lane, and, and sharing your best ever advice with the best ever listeners and talking about the way that you invest passively in deals while you have your full-time job, how you've gotten the single-family homes all across the nation, even though you're based in Seattle, how you estimate 70% is going to be from the income, 30% expenses, and you'll have about $200 a month because on your properties, roughly, it's a $500 mortgage. So that $700, assuming $1,000 rent, will be $200 in your pocket which holds true more or less on the 10 to 11 deals that you've done. And then also talking about the different issues that you've had on three of your properties, water, HVAC, and vacancy, as well as your vision for the future where you're going to be getting the larger stuff. So thank you so much for being on the show. Hope you have best ever day, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Joe. Best ever listeners, Matt Bowles who was a guest on episode 289. His company, Maverick Investor Group, has a special report just for you on how to avoid the seven biggest mistakes in real estate that investors make in the 2016 boom cycle. Get yours free at maverickinvestorgroup.com forward slash best ever. That's M-A-V-E-R-I-C-K investorgroup.com forward slash best ever.